it's possible, maybe even probable, that um, the discussion, this discussion, this subject that we about to discuss is the most important thing that you will ever hear. It's hard to imagine anything more significantly affecting or with the potential to affect one's approach to life altogether. And that is the subject of defining one's own role or one's own identity, one's own particular unique pathway in life. But that is a, that's a difficult and most significant issue. Let's try, to, let's try to work through the subject systematically and see if we can define the Jewish the principles, the Torah principles involved in trying to define what it is that I uniquely am supposed to be doing here, each of us. First of all, first of all, <coughs> let's try and lay down the basics. There's a fundamental, which is the idea, <coughs> the most fundamental level, perhaps, of this discussion, is the idea that each person, each Jew, each human being, really, but let's, let's freeze it at the level of the Jewish people for now, each individual Jew has a distinct and unique role to play. That raises a whole list of questions such as uh, the practical question of how do you find or define your particular role. It raises the question of how a process, <coughs> a lifestyle, <coughs> which is so closely normative as Judaism is, can breed that kind of individuality. That's a fundamental question. How is it that if I must do exactly the same actions that you must do, that if the code of Jewish law lays down the details of how we conduct ourselves, right? And it does. The Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, lays down exactly how you are conducting virtually every action of your life. If you read through the Code of Jewish Law, you'll see that from the moment you, eyes, you open your eyes in the morning till the moment you close them at night, from the moment of birth until the end of life, every detail is governed by a halakhically correct and required way of doing it. That's a remarkable thing. And every, every detail. There's a whole section of Jewish law that deals with conducti conducting oneself in the bathroom correctly. That's very important spiritually. There's nothing that's too intimate for the purview of, of halacha. Right? The way you tie your shoelaces is laid down in halacha. The way you tie your shoelaces, the order in which you put your shoes on, the order in which you tie your shoelaces, the order in which you cut your nails. That is important spiritually. So the question becomes, <coughs> how is it that a system <coughs> that is so narrowly <coughs> specific and so demanding can lead to an expression of individuality? That's an interesting question. Perhaps in the course of time we'll be able to cover that as well. You, you'll note that people who are great exponents of Jewish, of Judaism, of Torah, are flamingly individualistic. Of course it's possible to be a of course it's possible to be a cultish groupie within a Jewish norm. Of course it is. And unfortunately, there are people who become that. You can become a groupie and a mindless cultist in, in anything. In Torah as well. 
But you'll see that people who apply themselves to it and develop correctly and become great leaders <coughs> within Torah, in other words, people who put themselves most assiduously into keeping the laws the way they should be and most narrowly observe the details, end up uh, rampantly individualistic. It's a remarkable thing. You look in the Torah world, you'll find that the arguments and the differences of opinion about <coughs> major issues are, are, are extreme. How do people who are so closely adherent to Torah become so uniquely different in their... That's a remarkable thing. But that's exactly what's demanded. The Jewish idea is that by adhering correctly to this system, training the mind correctly, <coughs> what's developed is not a mindless uniformity, <coughs> but a very, very sharp differentiation. That's a remarkable idea. However, however, that is to be understood and explained, and we have to try and do that as well, <coughs> we observe that the end point is to be an individual. Uh, it is that. It is to be an individual. It is somehow to be within the norm and do the actions that you have to do as a human being and as a Jew and even think the thoughts that you have to think as a human being and as a Jew and have the responses that are required correctly and yet to be very, very individual, very unique. That is what's required. Let's spend this evening looking at the more practical aspect. Perhaps maybe next week we could try to look at the, the deeper aspect of the subject of how it's possible and what that uniqueness means. But let's, let's first look at the more practical aspect. This is the nature, the practical approach to the subject of figuring out one's own unique individuality and guiding one's children, if you're a teacher or any, any sort of parent or teacher, to help younger people discover their own uniqueness. So these ideas are <coughs> are essential. What is, the, what is the Jewish approach to the subject? Given that the end point is to achieve, discover and manifest correctly, fully, one's own unique role. How unique roles fit into a composite whole, mystically and spiritually, perhaps we'll leave for next time. Let's deal with the practical aspect tonight and see, see what we can learn. This subject very closely related and flows out of the discussion that we had on two phases of all existence, that life consists of all experiences within life, and life itself <coughs> consists of two phases, if you like, a male phase and a female phase, or the phase of uplift and inspiration, and the phase of coming down into what might appear to be disappointment and genuine building. I'm not going to go over that discussion again, but let's try to see that in the context of this particular application. Try and mention again what we need from that discussion to understand this one. In the process of discovering and manifesting one's individuality, <coughs> the sources that talk about it say that there are two phases in life. <coughs> stay, stay closely with me. There are two, life consists of two phases. In some of the sources that talk about it, it says that the first phase lasts until you're 18, and the second phase is the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be specifically 18. At a microcosmic level, it is always happening, these two phases. Some people... The first major watershed could be a lot younger than that, and for many people it's a lot later than that. But let's take the prototype, if, if you like, or the, <coughs> the, um, the pure model. Let's understand what that is, how it has to be modified through individual eyes. Is not what we cannot go into in a general discussion. The two phases of life are consisting of the phase of discovery and exploration, and then the ending of the phase of discovery, and the phase of making it happen. 
But let's try to explain this and then to plumb, as far as we can, the depth of the subject. The first phase, youth, is a phase in which the goal, the aim, is to discover, to explore and to discover <coughs> all the aspects of one's uniqueness that need to be worked on to bring out one's full potential and one's unique potential. The constellation of factors that make you unique, there has to be a phase of discovery. The second phase, which comes after a process of closing off the period of discovery, the second phase is the phase of taking what's been discovered and saying, these are the tools, and then closing off the process of exploration and getting busy maximizing the things that have been discovered. <clears throat> Let's try to make it clearer. To put it most graphically, and this is an image that one should carry through life, <coughs> few graphic images, <coughs> few techniques in the spiritual world that can be as beautifully represented, as clearly represented in a, in a specific picture as this, that's worth remembering and carrying forever as the emblem, perhaps, of, of, of the path. And that is that one should draw a circle and attempt to put into the circle all the unique things that are your personality. Right? Youth is the phase of discovering what you're going to the circle. Youth ends with the phase of closing the circle and declaring that nothing more goes in, purpose of this discussion, and that nothing inside goes out. And as soon as that happens, the rest of life should be spent maximizing the picture that has been developed within the circle. Right? And, and, and this is meant quite literally. You should, uh, you should literally do this. You have to go home, sit by yourself in a, in a room, take a big chart of white paper, and you draw a big circle on the paper. Literally, absolutely literally. It's worth doing graphically and, and tangibly. And you start putting into the circle the things that are uniquely you. The unique aspects of your character and your potential and your talents, perhaps certain disadvantages or handicaps too, Right? It's a very broad exercise. You put into the circle the things that are you, and you have the courage to exclude from the circle and write them outside the things that are not yours, that are not your talents and not your abilities. Right? What will happen if you do the exercise accurately is a remarkable thing. Again, the usual process is that one takes a large sheet of white paper, you draw a circle, and then you look at a blank circle for an awfully long, depressing and humiliating time. That's... One shouldn't be put off by that. That's, that's the norm. That's the norm. However, then you start thinking honestly to yourself, what exactly is it that you, at which you excel? Right? If you excel at nothing, then that's also unique. It's also unique. Right? <laughs> it's a very useful constellation of features if your circle consists of a well-balanced panorama of abilities, none of which are Nexus, that's also unique, that has certain, certain, certain very strong applications are suggested by that, by that kind of circle. But that's the process. You put into the circle, uh, when you do it accurately, right, let's try and work on this idea. When you do it accurately and you end up with a circle that contains the unique aspects of your character, clearly defined, and it isolates them from the ones that are outside that are not the unique aspects of your character, uh, if the circle's been done correctly, the result is a very strong emotional response. One of the consequences is that when you look at the circle, you feel a tremendous happiness, a sense of recognition. You recognize, and for people who've struggled to identify their own uniqueness in the past, can be a tremendous sense of relief and pleasure and happiness, that relates again to our previous discussion on happiness as well, 
of being able to identify clearly who it is that I am, especially for people who have never had a strong and clearly defined sense of their own uniqueness. And our society does, does not do much, by the way, to cultivate a unique sense of identity. Our, our society doesn't do that. Our society batters people into trying to all be the same. They sell it to you under the guise of tremendous heroic uniqueness. But, of course, they want everybody to be the same tremendously heroic, unique sameness as everybody else. <laughs> That's what they want. And we mean real uniqueness. But <clears throat> there's a sense of recognition that this is what I am. And you should be able to see the interrelationship of all the factors in the circle, how they complement each other, why they're all together, why you were given exactly that combination. But that's what it is. Another thing that happens, by the way, is a person who does this correctly suddenly feels divested of any sense of jealousy. It's a remarkable thing. If you're jealous of someone else, then when you start doing this, if you, if you draw the circle carefully, you'll lose a sense of jealousy. The reason is that the things that you put in your circle are the tools that you've been given. And the reason you've been given those tools is because that's your job. But obviously you've been given the tools you need to do your job. There is no way in the world that you can be jealous of somebody else's tools because you don't need those tools to do your job. If you weren't given those tools, obviously that's not your job. Is this clear? Anyone out there? Yeah. If you're feeling jealous of somebody else for something they have, it must be that you've misidentified your, your road. You think that you're supposed to follow that road, so you need that tool. But if you haven't given, been given the tool, you're not supposed to be walking that road. But if you identify clearly the road that you have to walk, You'll see you've been given exactly the tools. It must be, because you've identified the road by means of the tools that you have. The, the, the way you know what your path has to be is from looking at the tools you've been given. Is this clear? There's one or two yeses, but very, very few nods. You know, if, I, if I'm an intelligent foreman, and I have a building project underway, and I take all of you, my builders, and I put you on the building site, I don't have to say a word to you. I don't have to re reveal myself to you in a prophetic, you know, blaze of revelation. I put you on the building site with a bag of tools. That's good enough, isn't it? If you credit me with any intelligence. You look around where you've been placed on the building site, you see what's yet to be built over there. Correct? You open your bag and you see the tools I gave you. If, I'm, if there's anything to me, I will have given you the tools you need for the place I put you. No? You don't have to ask any questions. Open the bag and see what you've been given. See what works in progress, what needs to be done. That's why you were placed there at that position in space at that point in time. And that's why you're given these tools. So you have to look into your, the bag of your own abilities and tools. You were given those and you were put here and now because something has to be built here and now. You were born in this particular place at this particular time. You are given those parents, these amount of looks, that amount of intelligence or that amount of lack of intelligence, this kind of... Yeah, financial background, etc., etc., etc. The whole thing, including the uniqueness of your personality, your approach to the world, your optimistic, upbeat personality, your depressive, miserable nature, whatever it is that you were given. <laughs> yeah, these are the things that are the basic underlying energies in your personality, and you were put in a position in space and time. You obviously were given the tools that you need to develop what has to be done. Is this, is this clear? And in order to know why you put where you put and what you have to do, you look at the tools you were given. What else do you need? <laughs> Some people have to put into their circle being difficult. <laughs> but now, let's, let's work through this slowly. That's the principle. And therefore, when you identify correctly who you are, not what your fantasies are and what you'd like to be, that's the classic and tragic <laughs> error, though. We'll have to discuss that. But when you identify correctly what it is that you really are, then you won't feel jealous of anybody else. You'll see immediately that you've been given what you need for your job. <laughs> By the way, if you do it correctly, you'll not only see that it's your job, you will like the job as well. Because there's an axiom that you're good at what you like doing, and you like what you're good at. And that's given for a reason. And if you're unhappy with your road, 
then you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. You, it's either not your road, you're misidentifying your tools, you've put in fantasized tools because that's the road you think you'd like, you're making a mistake. If you really identify your tools, you will be happy because you'll see that it's exactly your work and you will thrill to the work that you have to do if it's correctly identified. It might take some sophisticated insight and you might need objective help from the outside. Not, no one says it's a simple process, but in theory, the, the pattern here, the ideal, is a straightforward and simple exercise. So far, so, so good. Can we... Yes, let's try and develop this. It's a critical thing to do correctly, of course. Because if you put into your circle things that shouldn't be there, then that's a form of suicide. Because by definition, part of your lifetime and life energy will go to build something that's not yours. It shouldn't have been there. And conversely, if you leave something out of the circle that should have been put in, it's also a minor form or a more major form of suicide. Because if something should have been done by you and was given and you've left it out, but you should have been doing it, then, then by definition you cannot be achieving that thing. The purpose here, the point is, the skill is, to define the circle so accurately and so carefully and so clearly that you, 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 you perfectly define all the tools and abilities that you have. Those will clearly shine a light on exactly the path that you have to take. And you will see that you're, you're, no two people have the same circle. No two people have the same path. No two people have the same circle of gifts and abilities. Every constellation of features is different. Even among identical twins. Let's try and go through this a little bit more carefully. First of all, First of all, the first phase is the phase of discovery. You'll notice, there's a lot to say here, I don't have time to go through everything, but you'll notice that the first phase of life, the phase of childhood and youth, is the phase of... You know, we've studied before in this forum the idea that everything that needs to be done in the spiritual world or everything that needs to be related to or understood, we're always given a natural gift in the emotional and psychological realm that makes that thing possible, right? <coughs> Anyone remember? We studied the idea that whatever you need, no matter how difficult it is, especially when it's difficult, you're given an example of that thing where you need it so that you can relate to it. In other words, whatever's expected of you in more broad, more broad terms, you'll be given the tools so that you can do what's expected of you. If you have to fulfill a certain role, and in order to fulfill the role, you need to have the, certain, the tools, obviously you'll be given the tools you need to discover what those tools are. Make sense? They're not going to be hidden from you. This is not a game. It's not a game. You're not going to keep the bag hidden from the, tool, from the worker that you want to do the job. You're going to reveal them to him. So you'll give him the ability to reveal to himself the tools. Childhood and youth, in other words, are given with inspiration. The nature of a child and a young teenager, yes, the nature of such people is that they have a sense of inspired potentiality. Young children believe they can be everything. They don't have a sense of a limited circle. You understand? The, the work of youth is to spread your wings and flex your muscles and discover what it is that you are. So Hashem takes a young person and He gives them the psychological thrill, the emotional makeup, what they need, to be thrilled by getting out there to discover what it is that they must be. Of course, it can go too far. It can go too far. You can flex yeah, the wrong muscles. You can just explore the wrong avenues. You can be left with scars in the process of discovery. Obviously, there's guidelines. Torah guidelines have to be applied at every... Every stage, obviously. Right? You have to spread wings safely, obviously. <coughs> try to fly and fall. But if it's done correctly, there's a kosher and appropriate way to explore every area. And children are inspired to do that. They don't have a sense of limitation. They don't understand what it means to close the circle. If you ask a five-year-old <coughs> what he wants to be, he'll tell you the most bizarre combination of impossibilities. But he firmly believes he's going he's to do all of that. Because he doesn't have a sense of what's possible and what's not possible. And that's no accident. Hashem builds youngsters. He builds us. He builds us when we're young. He builds children and teenagers with that expanded sense of potentiality. And that's what it means to be young. 
And the purpose of it is so you can get out there with a sense of utter confidence and tremendous openness and explore and discover what it is that you could be. Later, life closes in on you. <coughs> life closes in because you don't need all that. All you need is the unique aspects and features that you need. So all the rest gets closed off. And you feel a sense of sadness because you haven't done the exercise correctly of, of narrowing and identifying what it is that you need to identify. But, um, but it's not given then because you don't need it then. Second aspect of the first phase. How do you discover? How do you use the sense of wonder and potentiality to explore and to discover? So it has to be carefully done. First of all, again, this is a long discussion in its own right. First of all, one has to realize <coughs> that the things that need to be put into the circle <coughs> are not the things that are necessarily conventionally taught. <coughs> the school system, I don't exactly know what the school system here consists of, but I, I've got little doubt that it bears strong similarities to ones that I was exposed to. The school system is not designed in order to bring out your uniqueness. The school system tries, despite all that it may pay lip service to the concept of individuality and uniqueness, it is very difficult for a teacher to run a classroom in which he or she is giving real individual unique attention to each child's talent. It's much easier to treat people, to treat them as a herd. And therefore, the way the school system is set up in the, in the classical mode, this is completely anti-Jewish, is that the children are all compared to each other. And the standard that's demanded is a uniform standard. And the child's made to feel like a failure, not if he doesn't achieve what he could, but if he doesn't achieve what some other child achieved. I'm sure it's not done that way here. <laughs> but that's not, that's not Jewish education, that's destruction of, of children. A school system that, a school system that compares children to each other has got nothing to do with Judaism. In a Torah school, children are not, are not given marks. You know that? They're not given marks that other children know. Why does, why does this child have to know what that child... What's it relevant? Torah education means that you take a child and you stress the child maximally against the standard of their own potential. That is not holds apart. Of course not. You have to demand from the child the maximum that they, could, <coughs> that they could produce. Of course you have to. But to compare, demand from a child the maximum that some other child could produce, what's that going to do with him? If you ever want to experience heartbreak, you go to a junior school prize giving. Watch a little seven and eight year olds being given certificates and prizes. What usually happens in a class of seven and eight year olds is that there's one precocious, <coughs> obnoxious type <coughs> who gets all the prizes and all the certificates. That's what happens. Without much effort. <coughs> Next to him is sitting a little child whose heart is breaking. <coughs> that little child would give anything to come home with a certificate. But a child's not going to get one because it doesn't have the ability. So they teach that child that he's a failure because he didn't achieve what somebody else achieved. But this child might be trying. This child might have done... That's not Jewish education. That's breaking of little characters. Don't do that. The mystical sources say that in the next world you exist entirely alone. In the next world the person exists entirely alone. There's another dimension in which you exist as part of the Jewish people. But there's one dimension in which it's expressed that you exist entirely alone. Except husband and wife are existing as one bonded unit. That's good news for some of us, it's problematic for others, but <coughs> there's another discussion. Well, the point is that, what has it been alone? The, the deep concept is that, what we, our concept of the next world is that it is a situation in which you're exposed to yourself. And you come face to face with what it is that you are, and very clearly face to face with what it is that you could have and should have been. The ecstasy of the situation is how much of what you should have been you achieved, you worked on and you built, and the pain and the agony of the situation is how much of what you should have been you failed to to do, now that you can see clearly that you could have and should have, and now that you cannot do it. 
That is a lonely situation. It's a personal situation. They don't show you somebody else and what that person could have achieved. What does that have to do with you? You show them the standard of what you could have been. That's your pain. That's your happiness. And therefore, when you're teaching a child, a youngster needs to know that they have to discover what it is that their potentiality is. And it has to be very broad. It has to be very broad. My wife told me that she came home when the first experience teaching in the Torah school, little children, she said she came home the first day, she was struck by the fact that on the wall they had star charts. You know, little kids get charts for spelling and arithmetic and so forth. They had charts for spelling, you know, stars, gold stars. They had char- they had, but they also had a chart for Midas. Midas means that if a little child shared his lunch with a child who didn't have, he also got a star. Now, if you don't do that, you know what you're teaching? You're teaching children that spelling is important and doing arithmetic is important, but whether you're a good person or not is completely irrelevant. And that's not education. It has to be broad. You have to, if you're going to reward those things and measure them and educate them, then you have to put in important things too. Whether you can spell in Zulu or whatever it is that you, that you spell in, <coughs> and whether you can do arithmetic accurately and so forth, is nice, but it's not nearly as important as, being, as working on your character. Whether you'll be a good husband or father or friend, etc., much more important characteristics than whether you can do calculus or spell accurately in, in Zulu or French. <coughs> now those things have to be, have to be broad. Children have to... Uh, most school systems, unfortunately, are first of all narrow. First of all, narrow. Very, very narrow range of very narrowly academic things. And then in those things they compare children to each other instead of to their own potential. That's not education, that's destruction. When children are a little older, when they're 14, 15, 16, etc., then there's no problem being unfair. Then there's no problem. You can compare them to each other unfairly. There's no problem. Why? Because life is unfair. And they need to learn it. And there's no problem with that. Huh? But not when they're six years old, too young to understand that they have their own intrinsic value and uniqueness. When a person's old enough to have a formed sense of their own personality and they know how they compare to others, where they're better and where they're worse, that's fine. There's no problem with that. Life's going to do that to them anyway. But you don't do that in the formative stage when, 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 when a, little, a little mind's being formed, teaching that he's no good because he doesn't have the talent of somebody else. <coughs> is this clear? And if we don't compare people to each other, I remember hearing from my Rosh Hashiva a remarkable thing. He, he, he said that when he went to learn he was 17 years old, <coughs> he was learning in Lakewood, <coughs> in the yeshiva, and a great man came once to, to Lakewood, Rab Nachum, a very, very great sage, and Talmud Chacham. And as a young man, he heard a lecture, he heard a shir by Rab Nachum, and after the first shir that he heard, he said, that's my Rebbe. That's my Rebbe, and he followed him to Israel, 17 years old, packed up, and he left, and he went to spend the next 17 years learning by him, became a great man. But uh, I'll, I'll never forget, he's telling me how he gave one of his first chaburas, you know, in the yeshiva... <coughs> A young person would, would learn and prepare something, and then they'd have a chance to sit with a few others in a closed room, and, and once a week, one of them would present something in depth that he had prepared for the consideration and, and debate of the others. And they would take it in turns. And when he was 17, and he just arrived, it was his turn to do it, and they went into the room, and it was his, it was his lot to be with some of the senior boys in the yeshiva, and he prepared what he thought was a reasonable presentation, and when he gave it, it was so weak that they laughed. It was so bad that they laughed at him. I can't imagine anybody laughing at him, but... He said that it was inadequate and it was so immature that they actually laughed. What happened then was, he never did that again. Never did that again. But nevertheless, that's what happened. As the door opened and they all filed out of the room, and listen carefully to what happened. As they filed out of the room, he was aware that one of the senior boys was walking out of the room and in the (coughs) corridor outside, another fellow was walking past who had not been present. And seeing the new boy inside, he said to this senior fellow, he said, how did he do? How did he do? And he heard the fellow say to him, very good, very good. Remarkable thing. In other words, what's it going to do with you? This, he was exposed to this thing, and it was given for his growth and his judgment, and when we have to be honest with each other, we are, but what's that got to do with you? (coughs) 
That's Torah education. Anyway, so the first phase is the phase of discovery, exploration, and you have to have the courage to put it to your circle. All the things that are unique, not just your academic ability. That's a minor thing, unfortunately. I don't know. Sorry to have to tell you this. But academic ability is a minor thing. It's important. In some people, it's very important. <coughs> it's, a, it's a small part of the things that have to be put. Your unique personality characteristics. Are you empathic? Are you a person who's a good listener? <coughs> Yes, do people pour out their stories to you? You're sitting on the wherever it is and somebody pours out their whole emotional story to you. It's probably... <coughs> it's a sign. It tells you something about yourself. Are you better mechanically? Do you get on better with machines and engines than you do with people? <coughs> do you get on better with people? Do you get on better with animals than people and machines? Uh, you know, who are you? What are your skills? What are your talents? Where, what brings out your... Are you musical? Are you athletic? Are you... All these things... Nothing was given to be wasted. Some people have unique, uniquely strong characteristics. I was at school with a fellow... One of those absolutely unique mathematical, total genius. And he could think 37 moves in advance. I mean, we didn't play chess with him, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But socially, he was one of those people who was a little bit, you know, let's say inept socially. He was not so socially slick and skilled. You had people like that. So when we were getting close to the end of our school career, some of us went for an aptitude test. You know, one of these advanced computerized aptitude things where it assesses your character and then tells you what your options are... Your options are what, what you should do. So this fellow, the computer printed out only one profession. It said he should become a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> yeah. Today he manages as a professor of applied mathematics at a major university. But you know, the point is that um, you know he had quite a unique balance, you know, imbalance of. Characteristics, that's quite a unique personality, and it suggested to him a certain, you know, certain direction or certain set of <coughs> opportunities. <coughs> Other people, you, you sometimes need outside help. In order to decide accurately what goes in, by definition, you need outside help. You need objective help. You need a Rebbe, by definition. The first principle of Torah growth is you need a Rebbe. A Rebbe is somebody, by definition, more advanced than you, more objective, somebody who's not afraid to tell you the truth about yourself, somebody who knows more about ob- the objective aspects of life itself, <coughs> which is in fact nothing other than an objective picture of the world and the psyche. That's what you need. Somebody more advanced, <coughs> somebody not being paid by you, no vested interests, doesn't have to be necessarily the greatest person in the world, but somebody more further down the path than you. Parents sometimes are very useful. Fortunately for most of us, our parents are horribly biased about most of us. They're not objective at all. But they're often objective about things that you're not. That can be very useful. Teacher, friend... And you don't want a friend who just says yes, yes, yes. You want a friend who skillfully and cleverly can show you what, what needs improving. <coughs> and therefore you have to be creative and put into the circle what is genuinely your unique set of characteristics. Let's just stop for a moment here to note <coughs> something that often bothers people in this discussion. <coughs> there are a whole lot of things that have to be put into everybody's circle. Right? You can't say, well, I'm good in this and this department, but I'm going to walk around punching people in the nose because you know, that's not my... That's not part of my circle. No, you can't do that. In other words, if you want to make a real accurate picture of this, I would say that the circle has to stand on a base. The circle of uniqueness must stand on a base. The base is being a decent human being, and the second layer of the base is being a decent Jew. Everybody has to do that. Once you're fulfilling your requirements as a basically decent human being, you've achieved self-control maximally, you're working on that, maximum refinement, concern, consideration, all the things that you have to have as a human being, and above that you're fulfilling your basic Jewish obligations, that's not negotiable. Those aren't unique things. Those everybody has to have. After you fulfill the unique basic characteristics, then you get to your circle, which is your unique flavor. Of course, it's the circle that flavors all the other things too. Right? And therefore, obviously, 
defining the circle care, you know, meaningfully is built on a base of, of things that obviously everybody has to do. And for some of us, some of those basic things are harder to work on and include, and some are easier. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the uniqueness that is, that is put on top of the basic human and Jewish requirements. Pathway for Jews and for non-Jews is different. That needs a separate discussion. <coughs> but the same basic principles apply. Let's get to the second phase. Let's get to the most problematic and the most difficult area, which is the phase of closing the circle. The phase of closing the circle. Let's try and study this. Of course, the third phase, I don't know if we'll have time to go into detail. The third phase is that, I mean, just for, for, just for consistency's sake, let's talk about two phases. The phase of discovery and exploration, the phase of maximizing and achieving. In between comes a cuddle for you close the circle. Okay? The, phase of the, the, the phase of maximizing one's potential, that is that, that, that once you've closed the circle and discovered who you are, then every single second of the rest of your life should be dedicated to becoming the world's greatest master of the constellation of features that you've discovered. Every single second, every second, every instant of the rest of your life from there on in until you die has to be single-mindedly devoted to becoming the world's greatest exponent of what your circle has turned out to be. Every instant, even when you're sleeping, you're sleeping only to recharge your battery so the next day, that's why you're sleeping, and you're only eating so you can have enough energy right, to be sustained so you can continue doing what it is that you have to uniquely do. Obviously, the circle is your target. It's your goal, definition of your, of your road, of your route, and therefore the rest of your life you spent walking that, that path, not somebody else's, and not slacking off on the path. That's what it is. That's a big achievement. It's a big challenge, a big achievement in its own right. But it's not, it's not a process of exploration, essentially. Many more complexities here where one sometimes has to reopen circles. And, but that's the prototype, that's the model. Let's focus just for a while on the most difficult area of this whole discussion, which is the phase of closing the circle. Okay? Again, try and stay with me carefully because it's a unique area and very, very difficult and very treacherous, especially for men. Especially for, unfortunately, one of those discussions where men need all the input, women by and large, have the gift of being able to do this naturally. Men are victims of, the, of, the pro of this particular problem. And I try and make it clear. In general, first of all, let's understand. <coughs> when you've discovered what are the unique characteristics <coughs> of, that make, make, you, uh, make up your, your personality, your nature, you then have to have the courage to close the circle. And that is very, very difficult. You have the courage to say, this is what I am, and I'm not that, and I'm not that, and I'm, I'm never going to be great at that, and I will never achieve this, and I will never achieve that. That takes a lot of courage, and it goes against a man's nature. It is in line with a woman's nature. A classic female nature is to close the circle, and to thrill to being able to build it and make it real. And the classic male nature, to refuse to close the circle. It's amazing. All the women are going, mm. <laughs> All the men are going, huh? <laughs> yeah, but that's the way it is. Let's try and explain this. See, the mystical sources say that the first phase of exploration is male. And it's identified with childishness, childhood and childishness. And the second phase is by definition female, and it's identified with maturity right, and building. A deep, deep discussion about why that is and why it's uniquely male, why uniquely female. Perhaps sometime when we talk about marriage in more detail, we can talk, we can talk this out more fully. But let's say for now that maleness is always the beginning of a process. It's the uplift inspiration that begins a process. Just like if you, just without going into detail, the production of a child involves a male phase, which is a phase only of coding, only genetic instruction, and, but it does not expand into space and time. And the female phase is the phase of material construction. And that's always the way it is. The male gives only vast potential, and it's the woman who narrows the potential and builds it. And that's, that should be apparent. I presume this is apparent, no? No? 
Let's try and make it a drop more apparent. Maleness, maleness by definition, is a quality of multipotential energy. It's the, it's the spark that flies. It, it's the spark, the electricity that brings in all potential that could be. Femaleness is the quality of choosing out of all of that potential only the thing that must be and can be and sacrificing all the rest. Again, again, one shouldn't need to... You know, I'll never, let's put it to you this way, I'll never forget in the dissection of the embryo at medical school, and I was struck to note, I didn't understand what it meant, of course, at the time, but when you study the organs in a child <coughs> that become the factories that produce seed in, a, in an adult, you notice that a remarkable thing. When you look at the, at the ovary, I'm talking here about the ovary of a child, a, a girl who's as yet unborn. You're talking about a little child being formed. When you look at the ovary of a child and you look at the similar organ in the male, which developed from the same primordial tissue, you see a remarkable thing. That, that organ becomes a factory in the male that produces seed by the million. By the billion. Produces seed permanently by the billion. The same organ in the female becomes an organ that produces seed one at a time. You know that? If you take the ovary of a little girl when she's born and you section it, you can count the ova. You know that? You can count the ova and they're exactly enough that if she ovulates every month of her fertile life, she'll use every last one. You know that? There aren't millions and billions. There are no extra. And they put out one at a time as opposed to the male side which is... Of course, they teach you that it's the accidental result of having bumped into each other in the trees for a few million years. <laughs> it looked that way by accident. <laughs> you need your head read if you think that way. We understand that the body is purposefully designed as a manifestation of its spiritual qualities. Maleness is an unlimited potential. That's what it is. And femaleness is the closing off of all the potential and taking only the one that must be. And it involves the pain of all the rest dying. But it involves the happiness of bringing out the one that must be. Is this clear? And therefore, maleness is the mind, it's the head of inspiration. It's the, it's the, it's the attitude of, of new... This is why men, yes, you want to put it very bluntly and crudely, men never grow up. Men never grow up. Men remain attached to the thrill of childish exploration and discovery of newness. Someone showed me recently a book written by an Eastern mystic. Nothing Jewish about it at all. And, and a sentence caught my eye. He writes there a remarkable thing. He writes, a woman is a woman. But a man is a child always. Remarkable. See, even in, even in China they have this problem. I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Tibet, Nepal, I don't know, wherever. That's what it is. Because a man is attached to the phase of multi-potential energy and it's hard for him to sacrifice potential. It's hard for him to sacrifice potential. That's why it's given to fantasy. Because in fantasy you can live out all the potential. <coughs> That's why men, you look at these. In this society, of course, you'll never see it. But in some places, you'll see that men of 50 are playing with the same toys that they were playing with when they were 15. They're just a bit bigger and a bit more expensive, but they're the same toys. <laughs> Women don't do that. Women don't do that. Fortunately for most of us, they tolerate it. <laughs> but it's embarrassing, I mean. Uh, you see it so clearly. Uh, men read the newspaper, you know that? Men are, you know, many men in Western society are addicted to the newspaper. You know why? Because if a man reads the newspaper and he reads it from beginning to end, to understand it, and he can't get through the day unless he's read it. You know why? Because unless he knows what's doing in southern Chile and outer Mongolia, unless it's all running, you know, by his permission and with his control, you know, he feels uneasy. If he doesn't know what's doing in all those places, he's uneasy, he can't get through the day. He's a creature of total overview, control, multiple... 
What woman in her right mind, what woman in her right mind cannot function through the day unless she read the newspaper in the morning? If you watch students, you'll see the same thing. It's a male personality and a female personality. Again, what's a male personality? It's an exam in three weeks' time. The, the male personality approaches it like this. It's an exam in three weeks' time. sits down and makes up a timetable. On that timetable, he fills in exactly what he's going to study when. It's color-coded. It's a work of art. It takes three days to make. <laughs> and it accounts for every single piece of work that has to be done and it's all under control after the three days of making the timetable he puts it up on the wall and looks at it for another three days <laughs> because it gives him a sense of you know, control does he actually start studying? you know, that's too petty I mean, what are the chances they'll ask me this page, this page, this page it's frustrating, it's petty the female personality you sometimes it's not necessarily divided into men and women yet but the female personality starts studying Because what's needed is a harmony and a marriage between the two. It's a correct dimension of plan and overview and a correct dimension of, of, of getting down into the, into the particulate and the finite. That's what it is. So again, childishness, maleness, and that's why men find it so hard to close the circle. They find it so hard to admit that the fantasy, the 18-year-old man in Western society, his circle consists of everything. Everything. He's absolutely and utterly convinced that he has the world's greatest movie star, womanizer, intellect, you know, sportsman... He just, he'll get there. He's absolutely convinced. No question. What happens when he's 48 and 58? So, there are only two possible responses. There are only two responses. Either, either he becomes morbidly depressed, because he remembers that when he was 18, he was going to be the world's greatest everything, and now he knows he's not the world's greatest anything. So, if he's honest, he becomes permanently and morbidly catatonic. Or he keeps right on fantasizing that he is still the world's greatest all of those things. He just hasn't had time to do it yet, but he'll get there. You know? <laughs> but the center of the problem is, has to be understood. And that it's, that's the inability to give up the fantasy because the fantasy is the world of potential. Sometimes you see a young fellow, it's time to get married. Now, let's understand this well. He doesn't want to get married. Why not? Because, you see, he looks out at this world of women and there's millions of them. <laughs> millions <laughs> and each one is marvelous the Gemara says that beauty is in the world of women that's where it is each woman can you imagine the incredible depth of a relationship that he could have with each woman out there if he gets married he has only one <laughs> so you see immaturity means he'd rather live in the fantasy in the fantasy of all of it and have none you hear this and again in, by and large in western society also you'll ask married couples you know, where was the problem exactly and she'll tell you that the first time she saw him, she knew. There wasn't any problem. The first time she saw him, she knew. It took her six years to convince him. Because this character wasn't sure, you see. There was always something maybe better, you know, around the next corner. <coughs> but that's the issue, you see. It's the fantasy. And immaturity means not recognizing that unless you give up the options, you can't have what's real. Maturity means that in a finite world, understanding that in a finite world, in order to have what's real, you have to give up the alternatives. And that is painful. <clears throat> this has to be absolutely clear. Where do we feel it? Again, men feel it much more acutely, but in general, where do we feel it? You're on vacation. Let me give you a few examples. You're on vacation. You wake up in the morning, and it's a marvelous place. There's horses to ride. You can swim in the lake. You can canoe on the river. You can climb the mountain. Can't do all of them. You've got one day ahead of you, and on that day, you can do one of these things. Right? The mature individual makes a choice, gets up, goes and does it, and he's absolutely sure that the thing that he did is the best, and forgets about the others and enjoys it thoroughly. 
The immature individual lies in bed all day, <laughs> fantasizing about all of them, trying to choose which one until it's... <coughs> Why? Because <coughs> he knows from experience, he knows from experience, that whichever one he'll get up and go and do, all the others will, you know, will be absolutely sure that they would have been more, more attractive, and you won't enjoy this one either. That's what it is. Have you ever seen a child outside a delicatessen? A child holding a coin in his grubby little hand, and he's standing outside. There's 25 different buns in the window. It's an ecstatic child. He stands there lost in a delirium of pleasure. Right? All of them are absolutely delicious, and he stands there. Finally, after a, an age of, of anticipation and pleasure, he makes his choice. And as he's about to hand over the coin, and the man's about to hand him the bun, all 24 others start to glow brightly. <laughs> It's a miserable child. Miserable child. If you ever want to torture a child, it's not a particularly Jewish activity, but if you want to torture a child, <laughs> what you do, you give a little child an ice cream. When he's firmly grasping the ice cream, you give him another one. When he's holding both ice creams, you offer him a third. <laughs> what will happen? You have a pool of ice cream and tears on the floor. Because... He doesn't understand that you can only have what you can have and you must sacrifice what you can't in order to have what you... He doesn't understand that. He only understands having everything. And he'd rather end up with nothing. That's the sadness of the world. Again, it's a deep Kabbalistic idea. But the inherent sadness of the world is that it's limited by finite... It has infinite potential and only finite actualization. Yes, there's infinite potential. Anything could be. But only, only a limited number of those things can be brought into the actual. In the world of potential, there's no limitation. But in the world of the actual, since it's a world of finite borders and boundaries and components, is this clear? That's the sadness of the world. The happiness of the world is that when the choice has been made and that which can be brought into actuality is brought into actuality, then you have the birth of a child. Then you have a real person. <coughs> you have a real creation. Let's try and understand this in a little bit more depth. Are we together so far? In a bit more depth, let's try to understand. The, the deep conception is that the world is a process of bringing potential into actual. In order to bring the potential into the actual, the power to do into the actualization of what is done, <coughs> there must be a sacrifice of all the other versions that could have been, that must now be sacrificed, because in a finite space and time, you can only do what can fit into a spot, finite. Maturity and the skill of maturity means choosing accurately and right, choosing correctly, so that what you spend your time on, since it's limited, will never come again, is the right thing to do. Can you see how critical it is to define the circle correctly? No tragedy is to be 70 or 80 or 90 and see that you misdrew the circle. You worked on somebody else's circle. That's not real. You know, what's, what's fascinating to understand here is that the Jewish conception here is diametrically opposed to the secular Western concept. Fascinating thing to understand. It's so important, so fundamental. The Western culture is built on the concept of the, of the pleasure and the potency of potential and of energy and of power. Judaism is built on the, on the sense of real actualization and achievement. They see power as pleasurable and desirable, and actualization as sad. Let me try and explain, let's try and understand this well. You know what's the happiness of the birth of a child? You know what's the happiness of the birth of a child? Incredible explosion of potential. This child could be anybody. It could be Mashiach. This child could be is a lifetime ahead of potential. <coughs> you know what's the sadness of old age? <laughs> That this child has no potential left. This person has no potential left. What can a very old person do? They can turn their chair a little closer to the sun. That's all they can. That's all the energy they have left. 
And the end of a life is a total closing of potential, nothing else can be done. So their intrinsic view of life is that it's an ultimate sadness, you know that? Because you're born with infinite, incredible potential, and as life marches on and your potential becomes less and less and less, you have less energy, less power, less time, your potential closes, life becomes sad. In Holland today, you know one of the leading causes of death among the elderly? is active euthanasia, they have themselves killed. A person gets very old, there's nothing they can do anymore. They're actively, it's still not strictly speaking legal, but it's widely practiced. Medical journals are full of analyses of how and where and what. And it happens all over. But this is very old. Nothing more they can do. Nothing more they can do. And therefore their lives are terminated. Do you know in Judaism, in Judaism we regard the birth of a child as a happy moment, but a very anxious moment. And we regard old age as a very happy moment. Sure it has the sadness of lack of... Let's understand this well. When a child's born, there's tremendous potential. But you know what's anxious about that moment? He's done nothing! If God forbid the child would die now, he'd be nobody. He does nothing. No evincing of his free will. He's never built anything in himself. He hasn't achieved anything. He would be immensely sad. But the very old person, who's got no potential left, but he's done it. He's achieved it. It is part of him now. It will be, be there eternally. When you're born, you have a lot of money. But you have to spend the money to buy the goods. If you're caught at the end of the game with all the money, nothing you can do with money. You can't eat it. Money is potential energy. It's used to buy the goods. A mature person spends all the money on the right goods wisely for the best value. An immature person just wants money. An immature childish person wants... You know those kind of people that hardly spend the money? You know that? They just want the power of the potential. That's immature. The West has that concept. Youth is incredible because you've got all the potential. And old age is sad because you don't. We don't look at it that way. We say that youth is incredible because you have the potential, but it's anxious. You haven't done anything. Get busy and do. When you're very old, you have no more potential. But who cares? You spend the money. You have the goods. Your Torah and mitzvahs and, and the personality and character and what you built in the world. It's done. They're in the world. It's thriving. It's going. <coughs> you know, amazing thing. In, in Western culture, and as far as I know, in every culture on earth, youth is described as springtime and summer. And old age is described as winter. Yes? You know that in Torah it's exactly the opposite. The Torah describes youth as winter and old age as summer. You know that? Shlomo Melch talks about Yumei Chorofi, the days of my youth, the days of my winter. Why? Because according to them, springtime and summer, the juices are flowing, everything's flourishing, and then you get old, it all freezes over. And we don't see it that way. We see winter as the time when they break the hard ground and put the seeds in, and summer, old age is when you reap the crop, it's grown already. Oh, that's a whole different view of life. When you live life that way, life's an ecstatic process. Because as long as you're spending the goods all the time, and every day that goes was spent to buy the real goods, when you sit on your bed at night and you're about to become unconscious for another, for another night, and you can genuinely say that the day was correctly spent, you're not the same as you were this time last night. Whoa, that's a wonderful feeling. You regret the fact that the day's gone? Of course there's a moment of sadness. That's part of being in the world that the day will never come again. But what a rich satisfaction of the fact that the day was used correctly. When Rosh Hashanah rolls around, and you can honestly say that you're a totally different human being than you were last Rosh Hashanah this time. One ecstatic moment, you regret the fact they're getting older. Birthdays in their world are very sad, you know that? When you're young, they're ecstatic because you don't understand what it means. But as you get older, and they come faster and faster, when you get older, they become sad, they don't want to hear about them. They try to ignore them and they lie about them. <laughs> but we don't do that. We don't do that. When the time's gone, it's being correctly spent, you spent the goods, you spent the currency. But they don't look like that. There's a childish fantasy of power. It's not real, just an illusion. You know, if you really want to cheapen it, I mean, what is the, what is the climax and epitome, what's the absolute pinnacle of achievement for a, for a young man in Western society? 
What's the dream? It's called being a playboy. You know that? That's what it is. You know what's a playboy? It's a young man who has absolutely every means of power at his disposal. There's all means of transport that you can think of. Does he get married ever a playboy? It's ridiculous. You know, narrow his options. He's wealthy. Huh? He's got tremendous power. Does he ever close it down and build and achieve? No. And listen to what they call it. Playboy. Remarkable. Playing the infantile activity. And they don't even credit him with calling him a man. <laughs> it's not a woman's drive that it's not an ideal for a woman mm-hmm. woman's drive is to consolidate and richen and deepen and build the love that has to be built and bring it out and that's what it is that's the problem the problem is learning the maturity that's required to close the circle and to stop hankering after all those things on the outside of the circle which are just fantasy they seem so delicious and so, so desirable maturity means closing the circle and saying it's not me it's not worth pursuing because I can't do that not meant to be me and focusing inward and the immature mind looks at what's outside the circle and wishes it were inside never happy never happy with what's inside always want what's outside <laughs> young, young women also have that problem in that sense Never their gifts are. Somebody else's are better. And they forget to look at what's in the circle. What's in the circle is yours. It's real. It has no attraction because it's, you know, familiar. But that's the problem. The problem is having the maturity and the depth to, to close the circle and to be prepared to limit it to that, the maximum that can be done. Not about limiting for the sake of limiting. We're talking about limiting to that which can practically be handled, choosing wisely, and not giving in to the... You know, <clears throat> Let me finish with a story. <clears throat> it's getting late <coughs> for this part of the discussion, although there's more. But let's, let, let me just finish with a story that illustrates this point beautifully. <coughs> they tell the story of a peasant in ancient Russia, old-time Russia. Beautiful story. It's a peasant farmer who stood by the side of the road, weeping. He was a very poor man. He had no land at all, and all he knew was farming. And he stood there weeping because he had no land to farm. And as he stood there weeping, weeping hopelessly, the Tsar of Russia rode past in his chariot, <coughs> his carriage, he saw this poor peasant weeping. He was moved to stop and he got down and he went up to this man and he overawed peasant and he said to him, what are you weeping about? So the, man, the peasant said to him, I'm a farmer and I've no land to farm. So the Tsar said to him, that's no problem, I own Russia. And he took four staves of wood and he drove one into the ground where they stood and he gave the man the other three and he said to him, walk as far as you want, as far as you want. When you've gone far enough, plant a stave into the ground, turn, walk again, plant the third one, turn again, walk as far as you wish, put the fourth one into the ground, and the land between all four staves is yours, a gift from me. Man was overjoyed, absolutely overjoyed. Chance in life, he took his staves and he started walking. After he'd gone a few miles, he was about to put his stave into the ground and turn, when he said to himself, why should I stop here? I could have more. So he carried on walking. After a few more miles, he was about to do it again and stop and turn when he said to himself, but why should I stop here? I can have more. And as the story goes, he never stopped walking.